Welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show. By the way, this is the month of August. It's devoted to honoring the Immaculate Heart of Mary. August is the month to reconsecrate yourself and your family to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Let's not forget that Mary's heart is so pure and so full of grace. She loves us with a mother's love and desires for all of us to be united to her Son, Jesus Christ. This devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary has received new emphasis in this century from the visions given to Sister Lucy dos Santos back in 1925 and 1926. She's the oldest of the visionaries of Fatima. In the visions, Our Lady asked for the practice of the Five First Saturdays to help make amends for the offenses committed against her and by the blasphemies and the ingratitude of men. Uh, the practice of the Five First Saturdays to Our Lady parallels the devotion of the Nine First Fridays in honor of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. <clears throat> My partner Derry is out doing some apostolic work. This is the Terry and Jesse Show. We are not right versus left. We are right versus wrong. And I want to share with you the gospel of the day. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 36. Jesus made the disciples get into a boat. By the way, the boat is a metaphor for the church. And precede him to the other side of the sea. While he dismissed the crowds... By the way, that, that's what happens at Mass. When uh, the priest says in the Latin Mass, Ita Misa Est, you are dismissed. The sacrifice has been offered. In other words, you're, you're now to go and, uh, and share your faith. After doing so, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Notice the way Jesus Christ spends a lot of time in contemplative prayer. and meditate. This is the highest form of prayer. When it was evening, he was there alone. That's contemplative prayer. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the boat, again a metaphor for the church, already a few miles offshore was being tossed about by the waves for the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, he came forward to them walking on the sea. Can you imagine seeing somebody walk on the sea? At that moment, you'd, drop on your, you'd fall on your face and say, this is God. When his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. At once Jesus spoke to them. He said, Take courage. <clears throat> it is I. Do not be afraid. Again, that phrase is found hundreds of times in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Jesus said to him in reply, <clears throat> Lord, it is you. If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come, Peter. Come. Peter got out of the boat and began to walk on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw how strong the wind was, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. By the way, that word save me, that's the word Hosanna that we say at, at, uh, at Mass. Hosanna. That means save me. That's a Hebrew word that's, in, that's still used at every Catholic Mass. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? After they got into the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat did did him homage. That usually means they, they went down on their face and, and bowed down to him. Saying, truly you are the Son of God. They professed, they confess their faith in Jesus Christ. They profess their faith in him. After <clears throat> making the crossing, they, they came 
to, to land it at Gennesaret. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought to him all those who were sick and begged him that they might touch only the tassel on his cloak, and as many as touched it were healed. The gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. So many touched the tassel on his cloak. That's where we as Catholics get the whole teaching of relics, first crest relics, those things that were touched to, to our Lord, or a saint like St. Paul and St. Peter. Their shadow fell upon people, and the people were healed. Uh, St. Paul's handkerchiefs were placed upon people. People were healed. The bones of Elijah uh, caused a dead person, a corpse, that touched the bones of Elijah. Uh, the corpse came back to life. That's the whole theology of relics. But a little bit more about today's gospel. In verse 25, where it talks about the fourth watch. The fourth watch is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And what does this suggest? It suggests that the disciples were battling the storm most of the night. Now, that phrase that jumps out at me, that Jesus Christ walked on the sea. Jesus walked on the sea. Can you imagine gazing upon Christ walking on the sea? And I'll tell you why this is so important. Because this demonstrates that Jesus Christ has authority over nature. The fact that the winds and the sea obey him. And let's not forget that these were Jews, the apostles, and they understood that the Old, Te the Old Testament says that God alone has authority over the sea. God alone has authority over the sea. Now they see Jesus of Nazareth having authority over the sea. And so the apostles are aware that Jesus must be God incarnate. And he's indicating that, he's proving that by walking on the water. This is why later on they worshipped him as the Son of God. That was a, a demonstration that validated his divinity because the Jews know from many verses in the Old Testament that only God has authority over the ocean, over the sea. And the sea obeys God. Also in verse 27 where, where the Lord says, It is I. Literally, he says, I am. <clears throat> in, in, in light of his own power and nature, when Jesus Christ says, It is I, this statement also alludes to God's self-revelation at the burning bush. It's the same language that God spoke to Moses. And so, Jesus is going beyond reassuring the apostles uh, that he himself is divine and he himself has authority. And he's just reassuring them by these demonstrations of power. And in verse 33 where it says, You are the Son of God, this profession of faith that the apostles make when they see Jesus walk on the water, this anticipates the confessions of Jesus' divinity by Peter in Matthew 16, 16, and also by the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. So there you go. A couple of things I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the Hippocratic Oath. What does it mean today, if it, if it actually means anything? it's uh, Again, it seems to be com almost completely disregarded. We're also going to talk about the war 
that the devil wages is against Our Lady. The devil and Our Lady have been at war since the book of Genesis, and Our Lady defeats him at every encounter. We're going to talk about also how the feminist movement is part of this war against Our Lady. And then finally, I'm going to make an appeal in the fourth segment. I'm going to talk to our bishops regarding the sexual scandals that continue in the life of the church. I'm going to make an appeal to the bishops from my heart. The fourth segment. You definitely don't want to miss it. My name is Jesse Romero. Once again, just reminding you that the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the month of August, is devoted to her. So uh, let's... Let's do three Hail Marys. The tradition of the church is three Hail Marys in the morning. The Blessed Mother will protect us from mortal sin. That's the tradition of the church that the Blessed Mother has stated in several Marian apparitions, approved apparitions. Three Hail Marys and she will protect you, preserve you throughout the day from mortal sin. And so let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. First of all, I'll do it in Spanish, English, and then Latin. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Dios te salve, María, llena eres de gracia, el Señor es contigo. Bendita tú eres entre todas las mujeres, y bendito es el fruto de tu vientre, Jesús. Santa María, Madre de Dios, ruega por nosotros los pecadores, ahora y en la hora de nuestra muerte. Amén. Ave María, gracia plena, dominus tecum. Benedicta tu mulieribus, et benedictus frutus ventris tu Jesus. Santa Maria Mater Dei, ora per nobis pecadoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're listening to the Terry and Jesse Show. Just a reminder, we're in the fight of our life right now, and we need to keep picking up those five stones, the five stones that David used against Goliath. What are the five stones? We've got to be praying the rosary every day. Praying the rosary from our heart. Remember, St. Dominic received the rosary from Our Lady back in 1214 AD. And she gave it to him to defeat heresy. We are fighting the heresy of modernism today. Also, go to communion, Holy Communion, as often as possible. But remember, make sure you're in a state of grace. Receive the Eucharist as often as possible. This way you're helping out the mystical body of Christ with your prayers and your reception of the Holy Eucharist. Number three, read your Bible every day. And start off by saying, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Read the Word of God every day. Many of the saints have told us that when you read the Word of God and demons are watching you, they flee your presence and they flee your house. Read the Bible every day. Just the Mass readings. We'll be right back. Stick around. Don't turn that down. We're going to talk about the Hippocratic Oath. Does it mean anything today? Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Does this surprise you that the Hippocratic Oath is losing relevance in today's world? The Hippocratic Oath has long been considered the gold standard 
of ethics and medicine, the oath was formulated long before the advancements in bioethics. I want to analyze the important aspects of the Hippocratic Oath and examine whether it holds up in the current era of medical malpractice and consumer laws or has it lost its relevance. So, Hippocrates is considered to be the father of medicine. He was a Greek philosopher and a Greek physician. Before being taught medicine, Hippocrates' disciples were made to swear an oath to the gods of healing of the Greek pantheon, which were Apollo, Asclepius, Hygia, and Panacea, who, by the way, we reject, renounce, and rebuke in Jesus' name. These are nothing but demons. Remember, Psalm 95 says the gods of the Gentiles are demons. However, Hippocrates, they swore to these, to these uh, Greek gods in their pantheon, and this was to help them understand the gravity of their situation and what is expected from their conduct as healers. The oath that he wrote has been in existence from around 400 B.C., about 400 years before the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hippocrates was, again, he was a philosopher as much as a physician. He considered healing to be a scientific art. The oath that he wrote, it sets the standards of conduct at a time when healers were considered near divine. And the oath became universal only towards the early 19th century. Before that, different cultures had their own oaths. But in the time of Hippocrates, women were not allowed to become physicians. It has long since been a matter of contention for many female physicians to take an oath which was meant exclusively for male physicians. Medical education was just imparted to a few selected disciples free of cost during the time of Hippocrates. And the oath, the Hippocratic oath, by the way, prohibits specifically abortion and euthanasia. Hippocrates understood that doctors were healers, not killers. The oath has not taken into consideration the vegetative states. Obviously, uh, certain situations that we find today in modern, uh, in, in modern times, Hippocrates had no knowledge of those things back then. Hippocrates also didn't take into consideration unnecessary suffering or pain and the rights of the patients to live with dignity. So these issues probably were non-existent in ancient Greece. These issues show that the original oath, Hippocratic oath, has a limited role in modern socio-cultural and bioethical complexities. The oath asks the physician to treat the patient according to his best ability and judgment. It gives utmost importance to beneficence, patient autonomy and justice, which are now considered the cornerstones of bioethical principles, were not discussed in the Hippocratic Oath. So some people say that the oath is paternalistic. In the modern history, particularly in the Nazi era, scientists of the Schutzstaffel, conducted experiments without informed consent. 
these doctors acted according to the best of their ability and judgment. But this led to a review of the oath following the Second World War during the Nuremberg trials. The new ethical principles for research called the Nuremberg Code, they were proposed as the court recognized the limitations of the Hippocratic Oath in the modern era bioethics. When the oath was formulated, there existed only a tripartite relationship in medicine. It was between the patient, physician, and illness. The harmony or this harmony between patient, physician, and illness was disrupted by the advent of health insurance, malpractice issues, technology, and big pharma companies. Also, the recent increase in government regulation, the proliferation of the third-payer system, and the democratization of medical knowledge all place pressures on physicians that are new to the last 40 years. Their ethical implications are not satisfactorily addressed by the modern Hippocratic Oath. Doctors may not be able to prescribe the best possible treatment for their patients due to the economic restraints. Also, something Hippocrates never thought about was universal health care coverage, which is a state responsibility only in a few developed countries. And the intrusion of health insurance providers in corporate hospitals affect the physician treatment paradigm thus affecting the physician's autonomy in treatment. The treatment strategy is also affected by patients' choices due to the advent of Google and the availability of medical research articles in the public forum of the Internet. So the patient, or many patients, have become voracious consumers of medical data. Patients consult doctors now with semi-literate opinions regarding diagnosis and treatment options. The physician has to act accordingly, keeping not only beneficence in mind, but also patient autonomy or risk of suffering legal consequences. Physicians today are no more healers, and healing is no longer an art, but it is just a a service rendered. Medicine, a once noble and holy profession, has been defined as services rendered under the Consumer Protection Act. So physicians are vulnerable to multiple civil litigations, and the image of the Hippocratic gentleman is no more and has been replaced by that of a harassed general practitioner. The Hippocratic Oath is also seen to promote physical burnout or physician burnout. A recent survey showed that at least one-third of the physicians polled, that's 34%, agreed that the Hippocratic Oath promotes burnout. The oath which advocates putting patients' interests first, always leads to a denial of personal and professional limitations. The debate, be- between the, the debate regarding the relevance of the Hippocratic Oath and whether to follow the oath or the law is nothing new. Its relevance in modern medicine has long since been a topic of debate with many arguments for both sides. In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected the oath as a guide to medical ethics and practice by stating that the oath is incapable of covering the latest developments in methods of medical practice and research. Dr. Vietch, a prominent ethicist, claimed that the oath promotes traditional paternalistic values, which I believe is a good thing. In regard to ethics and morals, Carl Menninger said, when in doubt, be human. 
when the facts change or opinions should change. In this era of litigations, it is best to remember, when in doubt, be rational and follow the law. Ethical violations may incur minor punishments or fees, but violating the law will lead to imprisonment and an indelible mark on a doctor's career. People who choose medicine usually have a strong sense of ethics and a higher purpose. Very few people take medicine to earn money. For medical students who arrive at the, at, at, at the college, they go there with a strong sense of ethical values and the oath is redundant for them. And for those who lack these values, the oath is just an exercise in hypocrisy. I've noticed myself that most people that enter into the medical profession are people of goodwill that have a servant's heart. Now, there's no arguing the fact that the Hippocratic Oath embodies the principles of beneficence, kindness, gratitude, confidentiality, and humility. In a recent study, 59% of doctors polled said that the Hippocratic Oath was very meaningful to them. It imbued in them a sense of brotherhood, gratitude, and pride about their chosen profession. This does not alter the fact that the oath lacks the nuances of modern bioethics and is in direct contradiction of the existing laws at times. For example, it's at loggerheads with the diabolical abortion Roe versus Wade uh, Supreme Court decision. It is certainly difficult to give up on an idea which has been acculturated into the branch of medicine for nearly 2,000 years but nothing is permanent except change. According to uh, you know doctors, that's, that's what they say today, that nothing is permanent except change. I would disagree with that. Ethics and morality never change. The medical industry has been hijacked by the left in many instances. It's time that the medical fraternity took stock of the situation. Medicine will never give up on the spirit of the oath, and no physician is suddenly going to care less about a patient's benefit because they're no, they're no longer taking an oath. Physicians should keep in mind that any oath needs constant review and revaluation, keeping with the constant changes of the society. But notice, uh, I do notice that moral relativism has creeped into the medical profession. We should acknowledge that upholding the oath does not protect us from any legal difficulties. We should follow the existing laws until laws and ethics are no longer at loggerheads with each other. And by the way, only in heaven and in the presence of Jesus Christ, the divine healer, will law and ethics work hand in hand perfectly. Without a doubt, the scientific and medical community has been hijacked, politicized, and weaponized by the left. And here are a few of their baseless assertions. You'll hear the left saying, oh, the whole climate, the whole climate change movement. Well, guess what? That's unsettled science. The left will say, homosexuals were born that way. Guess what? There's no medical evidence whatsoever. In fact, before 1973, in the DSM, they classified homosexuality as a mental illness. Uh, another thing you'll hear the left say, abortion is health care. Wrong. That's pure propaganda. Absolutely unscientific statement. You'll hear the left saying, oh, the sale of aborted baby organs is a good thing. No, it isn't. And we've just discovered through Catholic undercover investigators how horrendous this uh, practice really is. How about uh, the left, the, the the left medical community? They'll say, "Oh, medical marijuana is good for you." Really? There's no proof of that. Just follow the money. The, this medical marijuana has been funded by billionaire George Soros. What about the the leftists? Well, they'll say cloning human beings in laboratories—that's a good thing. No, it's not. That's Frankenstein science. 
a human being comes from the union of, of a man and a woman, the egg sperm fusion. You'll hear the left say, oh, euthanasia is merciful and dignified. No, it not, no, it's not. It turns doctors into killers. You'll hear the left medical or scientific community will say, oh, we all come from monkeys or lizards and tadpoles and polywogs, according to Darwinian evolution. Well, guess what? That's a theory. And it's unscientific propaganda to promote atheism. You'll find the left in medicine and science, they'll say, well, they've already blackballed Catholic licensed family therapists from using reparative therapy in many states like in California. <laughs> in other words, trying to help homosexuals become normal and follow God again, that's not allowed. Listening to Jesus 9-1... No, Terry and Jesse show, sorry about that. My partner Terry, he's uh, out doing some apostolic work. We'll be right back. Stick around. Don't change that dial. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. We're back, the Terry and Jesse Show. The radical feminist movement is really at war against the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's just a fact. The war is against Our Lady. <clears throat> This article is from Dr. Carrie Gress, and I'll just take some snippets. She wrote a book. It's called Anti-Mary Exposed. It's, it's by Tan Books. came out in 2019. Sadly, the anti-Mary ideology continues to send the message that nothing is sacred, the profane is just as good, and that women's power is in their sexuality. It's a curious thing that whenever Christianity recedes, paganism ascends and gains power. It's just like a jungle that knows no boundaries, pushing its way into wherever there is a vacuum created by the absence of the truth. The absence of the truth invites paganism. And our new paganism has steady characteristics that took root back in the 1960s. Again, a good book that uh, talks about this is called The Anti-Mary Exposed. It's written by 10 books, author Dr. Carrie Gress. Right now, we live, in, we, we live with a cool and edgy cocktail of Marxism and the occult. That's what we're seeing right now. Women have been drinking it up ever since the 60s with men either embracing it or left unsure how to counter it. The radical feminist movement messaging has changed slightly over the years. The early years were spent convincing everyone that men had better lives outside the home and that women too ought to join in the fun and get out there. Women, because they're not men, but are trying to become like them, were given instant victimhood status, which has since justified the killing of 3,000 unborn children each day in the United States. Because, after all, the feminist logic goes this way. If men don't have to have babies, we shouldn't have to have babies either. Meanwhile, the patriarchy continues to be a boogeyman, oppressing the heck out of all of us. And by the way, patriarchy comes directly from God. God the Trinity is patriarchal. The first person of the Trinity is God the Father. And God has set a patriarchy 
civil patriarchy, spiritual patriarchy, and home, household patriarchy. He's he set that up to communicate grace uh, to those under the patriarchal structure and also for protection. But uh, you have people like Madonna, the erstwhile pop star, the washed-up pop star. She recently tweeted the following. She said this, quote, The patriarchy continues to crush my neck with their heavy boots, cut off my life force, and take away my voice. Even those who call themselves artists, you know who you are. Death to the patriarchy, now and forever. Close quote. Well, who do you think put that in Madonna's ear? (laughs) It's the same talking snake in the garden that deceived Eve. That's the same talking snake that put those thoughts in Madonna, the uh, erstwhile pop star, put that in her ear. Yeah, Madonna's very, very oppressed. She's worth $850 million dollars. Yeah, poor, poor Madonna. She's really oppressed. But speaking of Madonna, the 1980s, starting with her, ushered in a new type of entertainment that moved away from getting women out of the house and moved towards deeper involvement in the occult. Madonna introduced iconoclastic pop paganism that specifically made songs desecrating the Virgin Mary, Christ, the saints, and the priesthood. Even her name, Madonna, is basically basically a blasphemous imitation or usurpation of the name of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Madonna, back in the 80s, she wrote songs like, uh, Like a Virgin or Like a Prayer, and during and those songs and those videos, she was openly profaning the Catholic Church, openly profaning the sacred, and she took it all to a whole new level when she performed a 2012 Super Bowl halftime show full of satanic imagery. And because of women like Madonna, and the lure of the occult, and Wicca or witchcraft, they're now boasting of more followers in the U.S. witchcraft than there are members of the Presbyterian Church USA. And again, one bad, uh, one bad person influences other bad people. Now you have a bunch of other wannabe Madonnas that are doing the same thing that she did back in the 80s. You have J-Lo, Lady Gaga, Rihanna, Beyonce, and Ariana Grande. These, uh, all of these women have found their own niche or their own way to besmirch and disrespect the Virgin Mary and convey the worst possible aspects of womanhood. The latest pop phenom is a woman called Halsey, who somehow thinks she, is too, she, she too is doing something groundbreaking and edgy. No, she just copied all these other has-beens. Before delivering her son in mid-July, the 26-year-old filmed the 13-minute video that includes her mostly clothed, like mostly peaceful, silently looking at stunning Marian artwork at the Met in New York. And the video culminates in the unveiling of a painting of Halsey, breast exposed, holding another child, much like the Marian art that was featured in the museum tour. 
The revealed image is the cover is the cover art of her latest album due out in August. So on Instagram, Halsey explained the idea behind the album cover. She said, "The album is a concept album about the joys and horrors of pregnancy and childbirth. It was very important to me that the cover art conveyed the sentiment of my journey over the past few months." She writes or she she tweets, "The dichotomy of the Madonna and the whore. The idea that me, as a sexual being, and my body as the vessel and gift to my child, are two concepts that can coexist peacefully and powerfully. My body has belonged to the world in many different ways the past few years, and this image is, is my means of reclaiming my autonomy and establishing my pride and strength as a life force for my human being. Whatever all that means, okay? It's hard to know what, what all this means. She's probably on drugs, especially the fact that she's conflating uh, the Madonna and the whore, again, which cannot be mixed. But then she uses these words in power, pride, coexist, powerfully, strength, and autonomy in it. So, so it feels important even though she doesn't make sense. And then this new pop star, Halsey, transitions to the challenges of breastfeeding in our culture. She says, we have a long way to go with eradicating the social stigma around bodies and breastfeeding, she says. Well, maybe... But she seems not to realize that the breastfeeding stigma came from the very women who have been telling us to get back to work or who don't think we should be having children in the first place. And it came from those who tell us over and over again that the female body is reducible to sexuality. The title of this uh, pop star Halsey's album, which will feature her mimicking the Virgin Mary, seems to sum up the issue perhaps better than her Instagram explanation which is, if I can't have love, I want power. This is the true fruit of, of, the, of a pop star and the Marxist goal of America, especially we see this in the secular culture. This Marxist goal, which is grasping at power because love has become something incomprehensible, because love requires service, selflessness, vulnerability, and deep relationships. As I think of these female pop stars and their blasphemies against Our Lady and her motherhood, I hope that they sincerely repent of their sins against the Mother of God before they go to their particular judgment. Because if they don't, it will be a very, very uncomfortable place where they end up at. Unfortunately, pop music isn't the only realm where this nonsense gets a pass. There's a newly released movie that came out a few weeks ago called The Unholy, which, which features a young deaf woman who has apparitions of the Virgin Mary with miracles following and a worldwide fascination in the phenomenon. But apparently this virgin isn't really the person everyone thinks she is. It's a demon. Well, films like this and others, along with, uh, with most every other pop culture effort, continue to tear away at the fabric of authentic femininity, fruitfulness, motherhood, and spiritual motherhood. 60 years of the feminist movement is a long time to tell one ideological story over and over again. Sadly, the story keeps, keeps telling us that nothing is sacred, the profane is just as good, and women's power is in their sexuality. Forget about love. Forget about commitment. Forget about self-sacrifice. That's the message of these female pop stars. This all might feel like the fringe 
culture war craziness, but the reality is that there isn't anything to counter it. And one of these days, it would be nice if someone, anyone in the music or film industry could actually get the true story about women and the Virgin Mary Wright. But don't hold your breath waiting. So what's our action item? The five first Saturdays. This, is a, this devotion is one of the principal points of the Fatima message. It centers on the urgent need for mankind to offer reparation and expiate for the many injuries that the Immaculate Heart of Mary suffers from the hands of both impious and indifferent men. So on the five first Saturdays dur- during five consecutive months, the devotion consists of the following. Number one, going to confession. Number two, receiving the sacrament of Holy Communion. Number three, saying five decades of the rosary. Number four, meditating for 15 minutes on the mysteries of the rosary. And number five, all this offered in reparation for the sins of blasphemy and ingratitude committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Up next, I'm going to speak directly to the U.S. bishops from my heart. Enough is enough, bishops. You got to come clean. You got to purge the evil from your midst. We'll be right back. You don't want to miss what's up. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Bishops, enough is enough. Purge the evil from your midst. I speak as an unworthy layperson. I understand your positions of authority given to you by our Lord himself. You are the successors of the apostles and the spiritual fathers to over a billion Catholics around the world. But there's an eye-opening book that was written back in 1979, The Battle for the American Church. Monsignor George Kelly said, A guerrilla-type warfare is going on inside the American church. He said the church goes where its leaders take it. In other words, bishops, weak leadership, breeds a weak church strong leadership breeds a strong church venerable fulton sheen warned us back in 1972 he said who is going to save our church not our bishops not our priests not our religious it's up to you the lay people you have the minds the eyes the ears to save the church Your mission is to see that your priests act like priests, your bishops act like bishops, and your religious act like religious. The Catechism says in paragraph 907 that a lay Catholic like myself has the right and the duty to manifest to sacred pastors my opinion on matters which pertain to the good of the church. I have a right to make my opinion known to other Christian faithful with due regard to the integrity of faith and morals and reverence towards the pastors with consideration for the common good and the dignity of persons. As a faithful son of the church, this is not rash judgment. It's more of a plea or a cry for help. I love the church. I trust her and believe in her teachings. 
I'm also trying my hardest to follow those teachings, every last one, regardless of the cost. As we face one clergy sexual scandal after another in our church, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down or stopping, we're coming to you as children who feel like orphans, like children who feel betrayed by their parents. There's nowhere else to go but you bishops. Many of you have been the source of the problems, but because of your office, you can also be the solution if you find your courage. I'm trying to be the type of, faith, of a faithful witness and fulfill the Great Commission. I try to strive, I strive to proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. But boy, oh boy, are you making it, are you bishops, some of you bishops are making it very difficult for us to evangelize those non-Catholics we encounter by trying to explain one scandal after another. I'm trying to proclaim the social kingship of Christ to individuals just like the church asked me to do and call this culture of death back to Christ. But the utter hypocrisy of many of you bishops is making evangelization almost impossible. We're losing Catholics faster than we can baptize them. Catholicism loses more members than it gains at a higher rate than any other denomination in the U.S., with nearly 13% of all Americans describing themselves as former Catholics. I know as a Catholic layperson, I've got to step up my game. And I'm willing to do that, whatever the cost. But you bishops have got to step up your game as well. I don't mean any disrespect to your office, but as priests and bishops, you bear a tremendous burden. I don't envy that responsibility one bit. And I know many of you are, are carrying that burden heroically. St. John Vianney once said that a holy priest leads a thousand souls to heaven, an unholy priest, along with himself, leads a thousand souls to hell. Many of you bishops are failing. Many of you have been weak. Many of you have been cowardly. Many of you have made compromises with the enemies of our faith and, and led people astray. Souls are perishing because you lack of apostolic zeal and many of you make peace with the culture of death. God says, my people are perishing because their lack of knowledge. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. Right now, lay Catholics are so malformed in their faith that they're jumping over the trap door of hell. And they don't even realize it. You bishops have got to stop it. You have been ordained as priests of the Most High God. You are Christ's representatives on earth. You've got to act like it. The lady are willing to fight the battles in the public square for those souls Christ died for on Calvary, 
but we need you to lead us into the breach. Yes, lay people are willing to do hand-to-hand combat with the culture of death. But you bishops, we need you to blow the trumpets. Blow the trumpets of war. It's not complicated. Here are a few recommendations. Preach the faith on Sundays. Don't tell me to be nice. Tell me to be holy. Don't tell me God loves me just the way I am. Tell me who God is. Don't tell me to be faithful. Tell me what faithful means. Explain holiness. Explain sin. Be specific. Preach on the seven deadly sins, the Ten Commandments, the four last things. Teach me about virtue. Teach me about holiness. Preach the creed. Preach the lives of the saints. Preach the story of salvation and damnation history and preach it in all its glory. The majority of Catholics sit in the pews on Sundays. They don't know the basics of the faith and the only place they're going to learn them is from a homily. Don't waste your precious 10 minutes in in front of a semi-captive audience repeating fluff that we can get from Oprah Winfrey. Use the scriptures to illuminate tradition. Use the homily to catechize. Second thing I would recommend is use Canon 915 of the Code of Canon Law. In other words, stop playing nice with the likes of Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. They don't get a pass because they're rich and famous. Deny them Holy Communion. Their sin is grave, public, and persistent. And until they've publicly publicly repented of that grave, public, and persistent sin, allowing them to receive the Holy Eucharist is not only a source of scandal to the faithful, it's a source of confusion to the faithful. It communicates to us that it's okay to support abortion rights, same-sex marriage, contraception, no-fault divorce, and other serious sins. It also communicates to us that it's okay to vote for politicians who support the same, and it's not. I understand why you've, you've not enforced Canon 915. You've been trying to keep the lines of communication with Catholic politicians open. And, uh, and you've been trying to deal with them privately. All right, I'll give you a pass. Guess what? Guess what? It's not working. It's actually failing abysmally. Admit defeat, bishops, and change course. The most merciless thing you can do is allow a dissenting Catholic like Nancy Pelosi to wallow in her sin and end up in hell. Clean house, bishop. There's room. There is room in the church for everyone. We should welcome saints and sinners alike. But when it comes to our dioceses and parishes and schools, we need people who actually believe what the church teaches in positions of leadership. Open dissent on humane vitae, homosexuality, the all-male priesthood, and other doctrines seems to be acceptable in countless Catholic schools and chanceries, even in the good diocese, quote-unquote. Not surprisingly, that lack of fidelity impedes both the flow of grace and the quality of catechesis in our parishes and schools. People cannot teach what they don't believe. 
And until that changes, the new evangelization will do nothing more than limp along like an old man on crutches. Changing your chanceries and Catholic schools won't be easy. Uncomfortable discussions will have to take place. Feelings will get hurt. Jobs will be lost. Lawsuits will be filed. But that's still better than a whole culture going to hell. And that means some of you will join them with a millstone around your neck. Bishops, give us beauty. As Catholics, we believe that the body expresses the person. That's true for each of us. And it's true for the body of Christ. The physical stuff of the faith, the smells, bells, and buildings, expresses the soul of the faith, her doctrines, dogmas, and disciplines. At least it should express the soul. The church's liturgy and architecture should reveal a richness of beauty of, uh, and, and belief that robs, that robs the gruel-fed to us by the culture of death. We want beauty. We want reverence. The music of Marty Hagen and Dan Schutz, it doesn't cut it. Doesn't cut it. And hastily and casually performing the sacred rites don't cut it either. Jokes, liturgical puppets, balloons, that doesn't cut it. Bishops finally prepare for persecution. Hard times are ahead of us. And you are our fathers. You have to be ready for battle. You have to be ready to give your life, not just figuratively, but literally. That's why you wear a red skull cap. Bishops, be ready to die for our Lord Jesus Christ, just like the 12 did. We're done. That's a wrap. My name is Jesse Romero. You've been listening to the Terry and Jesse Show. And remember, as a Catholic Christian, love God, save souls, slay error. Live in a state of grace. Don't live in the state of mortal sins. Pray your rosary every day. Be holy or die trying. Christ conquers. Christ reigns. Christ commands.